So if you don't know who I am, my name is Kyle. And if you don't know where you are, this is Uplift. By the way, uh, we're going to begin a new series tonight. And this message from our new series is also going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called Conversation. So if you're watching a Sunday morning, I'd love for you to uh, say hi in the chat. I'm glad that you're watching us. Our new series is called Meet Jesus. Meet Jesus. And we are going to get reacquainted and reintroduced to Jesus. Now, I realize that proposition, it's a big one. I know I'm asking quite a bit from those of you here and others that may join us from this series because you assume you know Jesus, right? You assume you know Jesus, so you're probably wondering what in the world you've gotten yourself into. Well, I'm going to tell you. Jesus' story and his life are under constant threats of revision. And this is no surprise because Jesus poses an existential threat to many people. And, and by the way, the truth of that is found in the data. People, you've seen the news stories, people are leaving the church. They are increasingly dissatisfied with Christianity and with Jesus. And I think, I know why, and I'm going to tell you why in just a few minutes. But first, I want to give you a couple of models of the movement of Christianity. And both of these models are going to show you how Christianity both flourishes and how it diminishes. So the first model is from the New Testament book of Acts. And in that book, we find a portrait of the first generation of believers riding a trajectory of growth. Okay, so the church grew. So the first model is a model of growth. Let me show you this. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, you know these passages. You know these passages. We find out that 3,000 people believed in Jesus on the day of Pentecost. A few verses later, six verses later, in chapter 2, verse 48, we find this statement, the Lord added to his church daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Luke wrote this, the number of the men who became disciples were about 5,000. And in fact, that pattern continues over and over in various phrases and sentences and numbers through chapter 19 of Acts. People came to believe in the saving power of Jesus in miraculous rates. So in other words, the church grew. It flourished. It's this can't stop, won't stop kind of growth. And that's the first model. Now listen, whatever you believe, whatever you believe about the accuracy of Scripture, the growth of Christianity cannot be denied. It's factual. You're here because of it. I'm here because of it. Two millennia later, Christianity has had a persistent growth for 2,000 years. But here's the second model. The second model is a model of diminishment and disaffiliation. Now, this is the articles you've probably seen in the news the past few days. Current research says that within the next generation, believers in Jesus could make up less than half of the American population and maybe as little as one-third of the American population. In fact, in this current model done by Pew Research, this current model says that the number of people who believe in Jesus, whatever the models say, the current number is factual, and those who believe in Jesus, the number of those are in a state of decline. That's the, that's the information. The research team who did this, who pr proposed these models, 
looked at a lot of different factors. They looked at age and, and birth rates and migration patterns and biological gender and family dynamics, how religion is passed from one generation to another. And what they all showed, they did this model, they ran it four different times, right? Research has shown that people leave Christianity and people leave Jesus at an increasing rate. And here's the alarming part of this data. They're leaving Christianity and they're not adopting another religion. That's pretty alarming. They're not, they're not jumping ship. They're just leaving altogether. This data was ran four times. Four different models all said the same thing. And in every model, researchers showed that there was a rise in disaffiliation. People are leaving Christianity, forsaking it for nothing else. Now, the contradiction of these two models is quite obvious, right? The New Testament, in fact, in all of history, attests that miraculous growth is absolutely possible. And moreover, specifically from the era of the New Testament, miraculous growth is entirely possible in a society that was no less secular than the American society. And perhaps, in some ways, the Roman Empire was more secular than America because the Roman Empire had a state-sponsored religion, and it had the power to kill, to execute those who did not worship their emperor. Belief in Jesus in the time of the New Testament had serious opposition, yet it thrived, exploded. But from our current era, from right now, 2022, Christianity is in a state of decline, at least in America. And it has no threat, has no threat. Now, I told you a few minutes ago, I think I know why that's happening. And here's, here's why I think it's happening. I think people are leaving Jesus because they don't know who he is. Because they've never met him. Because they've never truly met Jesus. The Jesus of the Acts of the Apostles, that Jesus is a murdered God who came back to life, miraculously. But the Jesus that's proclaimed in current culture, secular culture, America, that Jesus is less than that. He's not a God, nor, nor is he the God. Rather, he's a social hero. That's kind of what we made him out to be. He's a social hero who spoke truth to power. In fact, he's just one of a million different people in the history of the world who've stood up to evil only to be a martyr. That's the Jesus that's promoted. You don't have to go very far to find that. You've heard of Alyssa Childers. She wrote a book that our church has actually studied. It's called Another Gospel. And Alyssa Childers actually speaks to this. She had a profound experience. If you read the book in the first few chapters, you kind of get a sense of exactly why she, she wrote this book and why she figured all this out. When she began to learn, she began to learn about this, this is kind of what I call it, this so-called American version of Jesus. And she began to see in classes and in university classes and in groups the not-so-apparent pitfalls with this lackluster picture of Jesus. And this label of teaching, by the way, it, you've, you've heard this. It's called progressive Christianity. And it's the current style of teaching that seeks to advance or progress Christianity from its so-called self-made prison of culture and history. 
Now, just a little digression. There's no central headquarters for progressive Christianity, by the way. There's no single personality that determines this teaching stream for other people. But it has been written and adopted by people once influential in the evangelical church. And progressive Christianity has several circumspect ideas, and we're we're not going to talk about all those because, for me, the general idea of Jesus presented in progressive Christianity, that's enough. It's substantial as to why everything else seems to fall apart. Alyssa Childers explains it like this in chapter 11 of her book. By the way, it's called Another Gospel from, um, and you need, from, by Alyssa Childers. You need to purchase it if you've not. Let me read you this quote. Despite the abundance of biblical testimony, the one thing that virtually all progressive Christian thought leaders agree on is that Jesus didn't die to pay the penalty for our sin. He was crucified by an angry mob for speaking truth to power, and his love and forgiveness toward those who killed him is the example we all should follow. According to progressive Christians, she concludes, Jesus didn't need to die, but he submitted himself to the will of God. Of the people. Now you're reading that, you're going to think that's a rather innocuous statement because it does have a little bit of a ring of truth to it. It's kind of there. It's because it's a picture of a picture of Jesus. It has something familiar about it, but it's not real. It's, it's much like this generated picture of Jesus. Let me show you this picture. Now this picture of Jesus, this is a pretty familiar picture of Jesus, right? He's a Caucasian man, light brown hair, a trim beard. In fact, if I asked you to picture what you think Jesus actually looked like, you might, you might think of an image like this. And with good reason, with good reason, because this image was actually produced by photographer Boz Udervik. Boz Udervik used AI software, artificial intelligence, to produce, get this, a photorealistic image of Jesus from existing artwork, from paintings, from thousands of European masterpieces that depict Jesus. Put them all together, and this computer program says, this is what Jesus looks like. Now, of course, this is not at all who Jesus was. It's not at all what he looked like. For one thing, he wasn't a Caucasian man. But because we've seen countless works of art With Jesus, we kind of naturally assume this is just who he is, just what he looks like, right? We're comfortable with this Jesus. We we don't have an issue with this. We're comfortable with this this image like we're comfortable with the above statement from Alyssa Childers. It's a good look for Jesus, right? It's It's a look that appeases our appetites. It's a picture that doesn't demand anything from us. And if we're not careful, even those of us whose beliefs in Jesus run deep, can be swayed by the picture of a picture of Jesus. This picture of Jesus, as described by Alyssa Childers in the the previous quote, the picture of Jesus makes us feel better about ourselves, right? It's a picture of Jesus that eliminates the nastiness and the destructiveness of sin. It's a picture of Jesus of a Jesus who didn't have to die. He didn't have to die to redeem us or to forgive us or 
to accept the wrath of God on our behalf. It's a picture of Jesus, in fact, that makes sin a non-issue. I mean, with this picture of Jesus, sin really doesn't exist anymore. You aren't capable of doing anything morally wrong. But here's the catch. Without sin and without any reason for Jesus to save us and redeem us, then millions of people who are listening to that version of Jesus come to the most logical conclusion. What's the point? What's the point? Sin doesn't exist. It must not exist. And if that's the case, then I'm free to be whomever I want to be, to love whomever I want to love, and to engage in whatever activity I want. And now you can see why this picture of Jesus leads to the second model, to the current models and trends of people disaffiliating themselves from Jesus. Jesus isn't necessary in this viewpoint. And if Jesus isn't necessary, you know what else isn't necessary? Church. Church isn't necessary. This way of thinking is why this series exists here at Uplift and on The Conversation. And it's why I'm asking us to meet Jesus again. So I'm going to do something I've never done, right? I'm going to encourage you to share these messages. I'm going to encourage you to share them. You're going to see them on video on Sunday mornings following, and you're going to be able to hear them on our podcast Monday mornings following. You're going to be able to have these in transferable ways. This is information you need to know. It's information other believers need to know. It's It's information those in your sphere of influence need to know, those who are tottering on the edge of belief. I want you to use this information. I want you to teach it. Steal it all. Teach it in a Bible class. Share it. People need to meet Jesus again. So in meeting Jesus, here's what I want to do. I want us to take us to one particular story in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And if you have your Bibles... We're going to have it on the screen in a minute, but I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles or if you have it on your phone, because we're going to look at a couple of things, I want you to open that up, all right? Now, this interaction of Jesus is not one of the big moments of Jesus, Jesus' life. It's not his birth or his baptism or his transfiguration or his death or his resurrection. It's just an interaction. It's a moment when someone else met Jesus for the first time and her response to this meeting. Let's read these 15 verses together. We're going to start in verse 36. This is a rather long section of Scripture. We're going to read every bit of it. Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender, Jesus said, had two debtors. One 
owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you judged rightly. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You, Simon, did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with her ointment. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now, in this little interaction, we find two critical things about Jesus. We learn two major things about Jesus right here in this little bitty brief moment in his life. These are two things worth sharing. They're two things that are worth the start of this reintroduction of Jesus. Let's talk about them. The first thing we learn about Jesus is that he accepted any invitation. He accepted any invitation. Let's talk about this. Right here in this story in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee for a banquet, for a celebration. Now, this banquet's not a fast food affair. There are no open bags of Chick-fil-A laying around. We know this because of Jesus' posture in this house. He reclined. He reclined. That's what the Bible says. Meals were not served to guests in chairs around tables in this era of Jesus's life. Guests would recline, would lay on the floor on their side. This was not an unusual posture. In fact, it's, it's incredibly normal for this culture. Jesus then reclined, he rested on his left elbow, and his feet were positioned behind the person to his right. Now, you're probably already catching this, but this way of eating incredibly intimate, incredibly intimate. Here's why. There was a tremendous amount of food insecurity in Palestine during this time of Jesus. Not everyone had sufficient nutrition, but everybody had it. Babies, infants died at alarming rates. So gathering in a home with a served meal was a rarity. Didn't happen all the time. And when it did happen, you didn't just invite anybody. You did this when you had this kind of feast, this celebration. You invited someone with whom you could share an intimate moment. In fact, in Jewish society, meals were viewed as the most intimate of all social gatherings. And Luke, who wrote this gospel and the book of Acts, featured this social gathering often. In fact, on average, meals or banquets, or feasts, they are prominent in one out of every five sentences 
and the largest single block of writing by one author in the New Testament. They're all over the place between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Jesus was fully engaged in this social behavior. He relished, now get this, get this, he relished in intimacy. You know why? Because he is not distant. Oh, I wish we could get to know this Jesus again. This Jesus that accepted any invitation to be with people, regardless of the conversation and regardless of the host. Here, we find the host of this meal is a Pharisee. Thus far in the Gospel of Luke, Pharisees were influential religious leaders who distanced themselves from outcasts and sinners. In fact, the six previous times Pharisees have been mentioned in this Gospel, they were cast as antagonistic to Jesus. So Jesus is walking into hostile territory here. But Jesus committed to intimacy, a God who is not distant, did not turn down this invitation from a Pharisee. You know what this means? In other words, there is no one too wrong for Jesus's company. No one. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus. And the second thing we learn about Jesus here, the second critical thing is that Jesus accepted any person, any person. Let's talk about this for a minute before we draw some wrong conclusions. Into this banquet comes a woman. She's called a sinner in this, in this story. She didn't, she didn't, she's not even given a name. It's someone who did not, as a sinner, she did not, nor could she abide by the strict moral purity of the Jewish law. That's who sinners were, by the way. Let's not read too much into this. They weren't necessarily moral failures. They could have been, but it doesn't always mean that. A sinner, this term was a cultural label given to people with any inability, whether they wanted to or not, to keep the Jewish law. So however that factored into this, economic health or, stat, or economic status or health or occupation could make someone a sinner. And sinners were ostracized. They were, they were kept out. They were kept away. They were not accepted. They were forced to live on the fringes of people like the Pharisees with the means and the resources to keep these laws. Yet with Jesus, this lady, this woman, this sinner found something she lacked. She was an outsider who became an insider with Jesus. The redundant, costly, unwritten rituals that kept her away dissolved, all of them dissolved in the presence of Jesus. By the way, it's not fair to label her as a prostitute. A lot of people have done that throughout history. The text doesn't imply that. In fact, the text and the data of the gospel actually says something quite different. Luke often highlights Roman tax collectors as sinners in his gospel. So this lady could have very well been someone who curried favor with the Roman Empire, the hated Roman Empire, and as such, she was forcefully kept on the outside. She was labeled and she was ignored. I want you to notice something, though. And this is if you have the Bible open, you can kind of see this. There's no record of her interaction with Jesus before this banquet, none. She intrudes into the home of a Pharisee, ritually unclean, and weeps before Jesus, not because, not because she's come to be forgiven, 
but because she found forgiveness before she ever walked into the door. Let me explain this to you. If you have your Bibles, you can see this. I don't have a slide. That's why I wanted you to open it up. It's in verse 47. We find this from one phrase in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Here's the, here's the verse. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, there's a little word in there that you need to pay attention to, and it's the word for. It's actually a pretty big word, right? The way that we have kind of traditionally read it, interpreted it, it sounds kind of like this, or it kind of means this, since she was forgiven, she loved much, right? Her love was the result of her forgiveness. But actually scholars think it's better said another way because the Greek word that's translated as the word for can also and is often translated as the word because, which makes which would make this phrase sound like this. She loved much because she was forgiven. Her love was the response of her already being forgiven. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. She didn't come to be forgiven. She felt it before she met Jesus. And I think that's what's going on. There's a qualifier here, though, and we have to pay attention to this. Jesus' acceptance does not come without repentance. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' acceptance does not come without repentance. There is never a record of Jesus accepting people without condition. Now look, he loved people. He loves people without condition, but he doesn't accept people without condition. But the greatness of Jesus is that he doesn't have to demand people change. He doesn't have to convince people to change. Once people receive this forgiveness, this attention from Jesus, people change because of that. They repent. You've repented because of it. The forgiveness from Jesus is so great that it compels people to change. People want to live different. And we see that in this woman who brings to Jesus a broken hallelujah. She doesn't have much else to offer but weeping and tears at the immeasurable gift of grace that Jesus brings. And she is charged from here to leave in peace, changed forever. Let me tell you something. This is the real picture of Jesus. It's a robust picture of Jesus. And it's life-changing. Before we go, I want to say this. Do not settle for a picture of a picture of Jesus. Don't settle for something less than the Jesus that we see in this gospel.